Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. I'm very excited. Our guest today is Ron Klain, who many of you may know was the Ebola czar, led the United States response um, to the Ebola crisis. Also, uh, along with Vice President Biden, led the implementation of the Recovery Act. So Ron also has, I think, some keen insights around some of the economic challenges uh, we're going to be facing both in the near term and long term. Uh, And Ron is also someone who has led debate preparation for um, most of the Democratic presidential nominees. He did it twice for us in the Obama years, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, John Kerry, Al Gore, and has been uh, helping lead that work for uh, Joe Biden, who will now be, I assume, we'll talk to that about Ron, facing off with Donald Trump uh, three times in the fall. So I'm going to be very brief because I want to get to the conversation with Ron. We now have a Democratic nominee. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is deciding, I think, how to wind down his campaign. But Joe Biden is our Democratic nominee. So we thought for a while that there was a potential uh, that this would go deep into um, the primary season, uh, maybe to Milwaukee, but uh, through his strong performances in South Carolina, Super Tuesday, March 10th, and then three big states this past Tuesday, Joe Biden has got a delegate lead that's insurmountable. Um, So we don't even know if we're going to have additional primaries in April. There are some scheduled in states like Pennsylvania and New York. Those might get pushed as well, but we have our nominee. Uh, And so now I think all of our focus and attention as citizens and as Democrats should be on the general election. Um, As you know, I released a book recently called A Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump. And really the spirit of that is as important as specifics. And all of us have a little more time now. Most of us do anyway. And it's a really good time to think about what is my plan? What is my family's plan for the general election? Financially, social media, am I going to be a volunteer leader if I live in a battleground state? If I don't live in a battleground state, am I going to write postcards? Am I going to be um, making phone calls? We'll see ultimately when door-to-door canvassing is appropriate. But if that window opens, am I going to travel to battleground states to engage in that activity? So we see through every day with Trump. We already knew this was an important election. We already knew it was one of the most consequential ones in American history. But given his utter incapacity uh, to handle crisis, to lead this country, we have to win this election. It's one of the most important things in modern history. And so uh, Joe Biden and his campaign uh, bear an enormous burden now to make sure they do everything they can to put themselves in a position to win. But we all have a role. And if you don't get motivated every day watching that complete, you know, racist, incompetent, uh, narcissist at the podium leading us or not leading us through this crisis, if that's not motivation, I don't know what will be. So um, all of you have, I think, a responsibility, if I could humbly suggest that, to really figure out what is your plan for the general election? What can you do that you didn't do last time? If you've never been involved before, um, you know, figure out what kind of activities you can be part of. Again, my book has some ideas. There's lots of other ideas out there. But we really need folks to focus on that um, because the general election is now set. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting next 60 days anyway, where I think rallies for both Trump and Biden are not going to be possible. They're going to have to utilize, obviously, Trump's going to utilize the White House podium. I think we're going to begin to see his campaign do a lot of advertising, trying to engage in hero worship and and basically lie and say that Trump's handled everything right on coronavirus. I think it's important for outside groups uh, on the progressive side to be engaged in truth telling and reminding people uh, of all the mistakes Trump made. But also, um, you know, Biden's obviously going to have to utilize technology and other ways to get his message out. He'll have the most important thing he's probably going to start to work on is uh, beginning to to interview potential vice presidential candidates. I couldn't be more excited that he was so clear Sunday he's going to nominate a woman. Um, so he's he's got to get um, really going on that because even if he waits to the convention, assuming we have a convention, it may end up being virtual. You know, it takes a lot of time. You've got to do the full vetting of these people. You've got to have a bunch of different conversations. So um, you can't rush it. Um, So they've got to get at that work right away. So, um, you know, I think the big news this week politically, which again is is secondary to the coronavirus, uh, is we have the general election. The general election is set. It is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, one of the most important elections in the history of the country. And it's an election we have to win because I'm not sure we can survive four more years uh, of Donald Trump, literally, because God knows if he doesn't have to face the voters, we already knew he'd threaten rule of law and our democratic institutions. 
um, and really focus on the grifting that needs to happen to set he and his family up for maximum personal gain when he leaves. But we now know there's going to be more crisis. Every president faces multiple crisis, and we've never had somebody so unprepared uh, for crisis. Uh, and so we have to get him off the stage. And now that the general election is set, uh, let's figure out what we can do. Uh, but let's uh, talk to Ron Klain, who's an expert uh, in crisis management, both from a health standpoint and from an economic standpoint, and someone who also knows uh, more than a little about general election debates and elections. So I'm, I'm really excited to bring Ron Klain to all of you guys. Ron Klain, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, David. Pleasure to be here. So a lot to talk about. Let me start with this. I think a lot of people are probably spending too much time on Twitter and, and Facebook, but reading obsessively, understandably, every hour about the crisis. But if you had to sum up using your experience kind of, you know, very briefly, the mistakes that were made leading up to this by the Trump administration, um, how would you best do that? So I'd say that was a, a cascading series of failures. Uh, you have to go back to 2018, where... Uh, President Trump and John Bolton, as his new national security advisor, disbanded the White House Office of Pandemic Preparation and Response that President Obama had set up on my recommendation at the end of the Ebola response. And that had continued through the rest of the Obama presidency, the first year and a half of the Trump presidency. But John Bolton and Trump decided to shrink the NSC, decided that getting ready for pandemics was a health problem, not a national security problem. So they disbanded the team, shut down the office, and that left us kind of blind and unprepared for what came. And then when the early signs arrived in December and January that this was going to be a very serious problem that was going to spread to the United States, the Trump administration, not prepared, then made a series of mistakes. First, they didn't put anyone at the White House in charge of getting ready. They shunted this off to HHS. That meant there was no high-level engagement with the Chinese and no across-government organization. As a result, as things started to go wrong, those problems didn't get fixed. The biggest of those problems was the testing debacle, where while other countries have succeeded in testing quickly for this disease, isolating with people, treating people, we are still, three months later, way behind on this because of a lack of management and organization at the White House. The lack of management and organization also led us to not take the steps we need to take to prepare our hospitals for the crisis they're going to face in the coming days as emergency rooms and ICUs are overwhelmed with patients and beyond our capacity. And again, there are things we could have done to get ready. Standing up FEMA, standing up the Army, standing up the National Guard, those things weren't done. And then you add on top of all that, David, the fact that the President of the United States, instead of urging the bureaucracy to get ready to respond, spent January and February and much of March denying that there was a problem, saying as recently as two or three weeks ago, that there were only 15 cases and they were all going to go away. As you know, David, from having been involved in these kinds of things, when the President of the United States stands up on a table and gives a clear message that the bureaucracy must move quickly, maybe you can get things done. But when the President stands there and tells the bureaucracy, let's not do anything, then for sure nothing gets done. And that failure of leadership was the failure that made all these other failures much worse. That last point's a great point. I don't think that's getting enough attention. Well, I think you just recounted in horrifying and terrifying fashion the malpractice. Let me ask you a question, Ron. So um, I probably, like a lot of people listening to this, you know, read a lot of the stories, you know, really in the last 24, 48 hours, really capturing the difference between the way we handled this and South Korea, where they did massive testing, isolated. How fair is that comparison? Like, is I mean, obviously, we didn't have the tests, but if we had been better prepared, could we be in a situation like South Korea, or am I missing something there? Is that not a fair comparison? It's a completely fair comparison, and not just South Korea, which has gotten most of the press, but Singapore, they've done a similar good job on testing. And so this is completely a failure of us. There's nothing that they have in South Korea that we don't have in terms of technology or organization or whatever. It's just a real failure of leadership. And kind of all of Trump's problems all stacked up together coming home to roost. First, this ridiculous view that the test that the rest of the world was using, the World Health Organization approved test, wasn't as good. We could build our own test better. You know, David, for your Silicon Valley friends and listeners, this was a classic buy versus build decision. And the Trump administration made the build choice and the build choice was the wrong choice. 
Now, having made that choice to build our own test in the United States, to go it alone, to not go with what the rest of the world was doing, then when that started to fail, because no one was in charge at the White House, they didn't course correct in time. They didn't say, hey, this isn't working, let's do something different. And they let the CDC and the FDA get in a weeks-long fight about what to do instead. And so here we are, and, and, and I have to emphasize this, this isn't just about finger-pointing about what went wrong in January and February. The problem is it's still broken today in mid-March. People still are not getting testing. I, I think you can go on Twitter, you can go on Facebook, you, I certainly can go on my own email box, and every day there's someone who's like, you know, I still can't get tested. I have all these symptoms. I think I was with someone. I still can't get tested. Or I've gotten tested. I'm waiting five, six days for the results. So if you're an NBA player, can you get tested? If you're a CEO, if you're a congressman, you can get tested. But if you're listening to this podcast and you and a family member are sick, you still can't get tested. That's, that's not, this is just about blaming for past mistakes. This still isn't fixed. Yeah, no, it's about as far from a 10 out of 10 as you can imagine. You know, you masterfully led this country's response to uh, the Ebola crisis in partnership with obviously wonderful people in government, the private sector, the medical industry. I'm just curious, um, you know, and this relates to where we started, all, all the mistakes, but I'm just curious, how would you capture most succinctly the difference? You, you know, obviously President Obama approached this much differently than uh, President Trump, for, to your point, from an urgency standpoint, putting someone like you in charge. But just capture kind of day-to-day, because you're watching these briefings, you're probably still talking to a lot of people, like just capture the difference between the two, if you could. So yeah, so I think the difference really brings sharp relief, the difference between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, if we needed anything to bring that in sharp relief uh, after three years. But look, you start with the fact that President Obama uh, focused on this early, before anyone in America had really heard about Ebola, the president was in the Situation Room with his senior advisors, building a plan. He made a decision to deploy U.S. troops to West Africa, again, before most people had even heard about the Ebola problem in West Africa. He was ahead of the curve, not behind the curve. And he understood that being aggressive would raise fears, would stir trouble, uh, indeed created negative political consequences for us, David. But he did what he thought was right. And then secondly, he put science first. He brought me to run the response. But people often ask, well, why did he bring someone in who wasn't a doctor, who wasn't a scientist to run the response? But I think the president had the right insight on this, which is we already had in the Obama administration the best scientists and medical experts in the world. He didn't want someone to conflict with their advice. He wanted someone to make sure the bureaucracy was implementing their advice, was heeding their advice. And so he always said in every single meeting, every single discussion we had, look, let's go with what the scientists say. Let's go with what the experts say. And that included some very controversial decisions, David, including the decision not to cut off all transit between the United States and West Africa, because that decision would have made the disease worse. If we hadn't sent people over to help, things would have gotten worse. It would have spread. It would have eventually gotten much worse in the U.S., made the decision to put in a series of scientific-backed measures to monitor people coming back and forth and to trace them and to measure their temperature twice a day. And all these things we did very carefully, very rigorously. So it's aggressive leadership, a willingness to be transparent, a willingness to put science first, a willingness to take some political hits to do the right thing that was the hallmark of what President Obama did. And with Donald Trump, we're saying the exact opposite a downplaying of the problem, an effort to spin it politically and to claim that it was all over, an effort to claim that his travel restrictions were working when they clearly were not. All the Trumpisms come to roost, and then, of course, silencing people who he disagreed with. The first senior U.S. official to raise the red flag of this was Dr. Nancy Messonnier, who was at CDC under President Obama and his predecessors, a 30-year career servant at CDC. She has saved millions of lives, she stood up and said, hey, this is going to come here. We need to act. And what did Trump do? The next day, he removed her from all public briefings. He basically silenced her. You can't imagine Barack Obama doing anything like that. That is the, just the epitome of how Trump has approached this. Ron, what are you most concerned about over the next, let's say, three to four weeks? We'll talk about the economy in a minute, so let's leave that aside. Is it the hospital bed shortage? Is it still the tests? Like, what gives you 
the most concern and what should folks be most concerned about? Look, what I'm most concerned about is, in fact, this uh, crisis we're going to face in our healthcare system. So uh, starting as early, I think, as the 20th, the 21st, the 22nd, we're going to see hospitals in major cities uh, just overwhelmed. Too many patients, too few doctors, too few beds. Uh, we're already hearing the Centers for Disease Control telling doctors uh, not only that they can't get the N95 masks that protect them, but they can't even get basic surgical masks, which provide partial protection. They should just use bandanas to work on patients. Okay, that, That's something you don't even see in developing countries. We're going to see that in major hospitals in America in the coming days. What that will mean is that doctors will get sick. And at a time when the surge of patients is increasing, our ability to treat them will drop because we'll lose doctors and nurses to illness. Also, not enough equipment, not enough hospital beds, uh, not enough ICU beds. So we'll see the kinds of scenes we saw in Italy where people are stacked up in the hallways. And let's be clear, this is not only going to affect treatment for the coronavirus, but for everything. On Thursday, a hospital in Philadelphia closed its labor and delivery ward because all the labor and delivery nurses had gotten coronavirus. So they couldn't participate in baby deliveries. People who have heart attacks and other ailments who come to the hospital will be unable to get treated or will find that treatment delayed or compromised as the system starts to collapse. And so I think that's the most immediate concern is this just overwhelming of our hospitals, of our healthcare system, as doctors and nurses get sick, as beds get filled up, as ventilators get filled up, as respirators get filled up, as equipment starts to run short. And Ron, I'm curious, I don't think the administration has done a really good job communicating that because I think you see people, and I'm not talking about the irresponsible spring break jerks, but, you know, folks see the number of cases compared to our population and, you know, people like, well, I'm not sure we need to go through all these severe measures, but I don't think this hospital bed shortage, as you mentioned, uh, the medical professional, the heroes out there, what could happen to them, it's already happening. How could they be communicating that better? Because I think that would help everybody understand the healthcare crisis we're in. But it seems to me, and obviously Trump's been a disaster on this front, but I think even uh, other members of his administration, it's been interesting, the CDC director has been sidelined. What's your view on that? Because, you know, you've obviously uh, led efforts like this. And, you know, obviously what you do is more important than what you communicate, but they're connected. They are connected, David. And again, just to go back for a second, President Obama made a hard decision to say repeatedly to the American public, against the advice of some people in the White House, hey, we are going to see cases of Ebola in America. I can't promise you it won't come here. You know, this is what's going to happen, so on and so forth. He was just very transparent with people. And sometimes those scary communications actually are reassuring because they feel like their leader is being candid and he's on top of it. And here, Trump did just the opposite. Don't worry, we got it under control. We've sealed the borders, even as thousands of people from China were arriving every day. So the miscommunication is a big problem. It undermines confidence. It undermines the response. Here, we also have to understand part of this is, let's take it off Trump, a little bit of human nature. And that's this. The cases show up in the hospitals about two weeks after someone gets infected. So someone who shows up in a hospital tomorrow got this disease two weeks ago. And so if you think about it, we're like on a two-week time lag. So two weeks ago, we were all still all running around, going to work, going to restaurants, going to bars, whatever. And now we're doing all these things, and we're not going to see the results of those things because the people who are getting sick are the people who got sick before we started doing all these things. And I think that time lag is a hard thing for people to process mentally. The other thing that's hard to process mentally is just how quickly this spreads. If I pass the disease to you today, and you are not super active, but a little bit outside your house, whatever, you will pass it to 144 other people after 30 days. So that's why we're seeing numbers where basically the number of cases of this disease in the U.S. are doubling every three days. So this was 1,000 cases six days ago, eight or nine days ago, then 3,000 cases, then 6,000 cases, and by the 20th or the 21st, we'll be at 12 or 13,000 cases. So this really ramps up very, very quickly. The, the path up is quick and steep. And I think these are just things that are hard for us to process. And when you add to it inconsistent communications from the president and his senior team, 
you exacerbate that problem. Even if well communicated, it would be hard to persuade people that something that they're not seeing is as bad as it is. But with bad communications, it's impossible to persuade people of that. So uh, I think, Ron, a lot of people know you as the Ebola czar. Um, <laughs> but folks who uh, are clanophiles also uh, understand that you, along with Vice President Biden, led uh, the Recovery Act implementation. So let's talk about the economy a little bit. Obviously, we just had a package passed by the Senate, kind of just a down payment, some big ideas happening. I'm just curious, both from your experience during the Recovery Act, you obviously are very close now working with entrepreneurs and and startups and small businesses. I don't think there's a, a proper appreciation, at least in the general public, about how severe this is. I think another way that Trump has been deeply irresponsible, his suggestion is, once this is over, the economy will just snap back. I mean, it's going to take us years and years and years to dig out from this. So I'd love your thoughts about, A, what we can do in the near term, and then, B, how we need to be planning for what is going to be a really, really lengthy, unfortunate uh, recovery. Yeah, so I think that um, a couple things here. Uh, It is going to be more serious and more long-lasting than people think. And I think it's really important to understand that. Uh, Let's break it down to some very simple things. Malls are closing. And when malls close, the stores inside malls close. And each of those stores, some of those are big chains, but a lot of them are mom and pop stores. And those stores, once they close, they may never reopen. The people may not have the capital to reopen them. Uh, People may be shopping online and never go back to those stores. And so I think we're going to see changes in our economy that are very, 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 very long-lasting. This isn't a snowstorm. You know, a snowstorm, when a snowstorm hits... Basically, everything kind of shuts down for three or four days, and then people kind of make up the purchases afterwards, and you see this kind of dip and then this surge. That's not what this is. This is going to last a long time. Some purchases not made will never get made. Some businesses closed down will never reopen. And I think that you're right, David. This is people are really underestimating the duration and the significance of the economic impact. And the other thing about this that makes it even different than 2008, 2008, we obviously had a serious, serious crisis that President Obama inherited, but it, it affected our financial system, it affected a lot of businesses, but people were still going to the grocery store, people were still going to the movie theater, people were still going to the dry cleaners, they were still doing the daily things of life, and that created a baseline level of economic activity that we could build on, and uh, there's no question that that's a big factor here. And so I think that when you uh, hear just all economic activity is ceasing. And so the, the, the kind of the spread and the impact of that is just really, really dramatic. And I think in some ways uh, it's going to get worse, not better, because even parts of the economy that are still working are going to start to get disrupted. The ability to get things delivered at home will start to diminish as delivery workers get sick and leave the job. Uh, we'll see disruptions in all kinds of supply chains. So we're we're at the uh, the early days of the economic impacts. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So would your view be obviously in the near term? I mean, there's ideas about giving you know every American two thousand dollars per month. Things that you know even were on a scale we've never talked about in this country. So it seems to me we need to throw everything at this in the near term. Then the question is, to your point, like this is going to be with us for years and years and years. And I'm just curious with a presidential campaign in front of us uh, and with Vice President Biden now being the Democratic nominee, how important do you think his experience during the Recovery Act will be in terms of credibility to the American people that, you know, he's been through this before and he's someone who, you know, has the experience not to just do the triage, which is important, but to help figure us how we're going to, you know, get back to some sense of normalcy in the economy. Yeah, you know, David, I think it's a great point. And I think that experience, I think, bears forward in several ways. Uh, First, uh, you know, he was part of, with President Obama and the team, of making the decisions about how to respond to the economic crisis all the way back to the campaign itself and the transition and some of those meetings in Chicago in December of 2008 where some of the key decisions were made. He was at the table when those decisions were made. And then President Obama gave him a lot of responsibility to oversee implementation of the Recovery Act and to make it work. I mean, you know, it's one thing for Congress to 
approve a lot of money, that doesn't really change anything until the executive branch puts that money to work, until we go from voting on bills to actually building bridges or roads or installing solar panels or all those things. And Biden's experience in, in translating laws into action, I think, is going to be very, very important as this thing progresses. And then finally, as you know, David, he has a fundamentally optimistic mindset uh, that's largely been formed through tragedy. I mean, I think the thing about Joe Biden that you saw time and again in all the meetings we were in in 2009 and, and 2010 was um, he's seen some very bad things. And so he has a very level demeanor, a very you know good perspective on things and can, uh, I think, rally people in tough times. And I think you've seen that already during this campaign uh, and some of the things he said, some of the things he's done. And I think that'll be a very important quality. If he becomes president, he's going to inherit a country that's in trouble. And uh, being able to inspire people, uh, I think, will be an important part of the job. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think some of the things that might have been more challenging in the primary, you know, his length of service in Washington, uh, the fact that he is you know, a stable figure, you know, his empathy, his compassion. I think those things uh, in a general election, even out without this crisis, I think, I think are undervalued and will be an important part of his campaign. But I think in a crisis, um, he's kind of tailor-made, you know, from a background and profile. So Ron has been, uh, led our Ebola response uh, as a nation. Uh, he helped lead the Recovery Act implementation uh, after the Great Recession. For those of you that don't know, he's also a debate master. So he is, uh, he's managed debate prep for a lot of the folks who've been Democratic nominees, uh, including Barack Obama. I'm curious, Ron, do you think we're going to have debates this fall? Do you think Trump will agree to debate? Yeah, so, you know, it's obviously a great question, and Trump is unpredictable. But uh, in 2016, people said he wouldn't debate, and I always thought he was going to debate, and I think he's going to debate again now. Why? Because Donald Trump can't resist a big audience. Right. And there's no audience in American public and American politics larger than the presidential debates. And so uh, the man loves the camera, you know, t- to his detriment sometimes. I think the fact that he's going out in the White House briefing room and briefing on this coronavirus thing every day is a disaster. What he says is horrible. His whole effort is to drive the markets up. Every time he talks, he drives the markets down. But he just can't resist the camera. And I think when people come to him and say, hey, do you want an audience of 100 million people to listen to you for 90 minutes? He's going to have trouble saying no to that. And even if he has any temptation to resist it, I think the first time people call him chicken, right. say he's scared to debate Joe Biden, there's just no way he's going to abide that. So uh, I think we, we in the Biden campaign are preparing for, will be preparing for fall debates against President Trump. And I assume he will show up for those debates. Now, I think um, Trump, you know, often doesn't get accused of acting strategically. <laughs> but do you think part of their resistance here is they're trying to maximize their leverage in the negotiations? And if so, what types of things are they trying to get accomplished in those negotiations uh, for these three debates? So look, maybe they're trying to maximize their leverage. What I teach a course on law practice and campaign debates at Harvard Law School. And one thing that we almost always see, we, we mock out debate negotiations between lawyers for both sides. And one thing you almost always see is that the the negotiations never work out the way you expect. Uh, Back in 2004, uh, President George W. Bush made a big point of insisting in the negotiations that there be visible timing lights uh, on TV when he and John Kerry spoke. And their theory was that John Kerry couldn't shut up, he would go over the time, he'd talk too much, and he would be embarrassed by getting red-lighted all the time. And in fact, what happened on debate night was it was pretty easy for John Kerry, a very smart, skilled person, to understand, to stop talking before the red light came on. But conversely, George Bush, who just didn't have that much to say, would stop talking when the green light was still on. And he got embarrassed by giving overly short answers on the debate. So their strategic gambit to put Kerry on the spot uh, wound up putting Bush on the spot. And I think the same thing's going on here with Trump. I mean, in the end... Donald Trump is going to stand at a podium and be Donald Trump. And I don't really care what rules we have for this debate. I don't care if the answers are short or long, if there's free discussion, if there's structured answers. He is going to be Trump. And I think that choice that people see between someone like Donald Trump and Joe Biden is our best asset in this campaign. And so 
you know, unless they have a rule that someone else gets to do this for him, anytime he's standing at a podium next to Joe Biden, I think we're going to win in that comparison. So I want to talk a little bit more about the fall. But one thing that struck me in the debate with Bernie Sanders on Sunday was, A, well, you know, you led these uh, sessions back in, in 8 and 12. I just participated in But Joe Biden was very strong in those one-on-one debates. So I'd like to ask you one And I also think Joe Biden doesn't like attacking Democrats, right? So when you had nine people on the stage and people are throwing, I mean, I I just think that's different from him. But I also was really made me optimistic because one of the things that's concerned me is in a lot of the debates so far in this campaign, I think the vice president has spent less time talking about the future than some of the other candidates. And he was very focused Sunday on, you know, not just as related to the coronavirus crisis, but what we needed to do, what he would do as president. I'm just curious why you think we ended up in that place. And obviously, I don't want you to spill secrets, but it seemed to me that that was important and that'll be an important part of the fall, which is obviously you need to prosecute Trump's record. Vice President Biden does have a, a record that from a value standpoint and accomplishment standpoint, I think is an important touchstone. But obviously, we do need to make this about the future. Yeah, look, I think primary debates are really, really hard. And I think, obviously, President Obama went through 23 of them in 2008. Don't remind me, man. A bunch of them didn't go well, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But kind of that field quickly narrowed, you know, after a few of them to a lot of them being just uh, Clinton and Obama, a few of them with a couple other people. But, But I think that here, there's really never been anyone who has stood on a stage with as many other Democrats and had as many of them make their strategy tearing you apart as Joe Biden faced in these early debates. Kamala Harris... Uh, Christian Gillibrand, Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, all came into debates where their central strategic premise was, I'm going to destroy Joe Biden. And I think that obviously is a very difficult thing to manage as another Democrat. Uh, And it put him on the defensive about his record. Most of these attacks, in fact, were not about his positions in the 2020 race, but about votes he had cast or positions he had said a long time ago, some of them 20, 30 years ago. And I think uh, defending that was very, very hard. And I think he's always had a long-run perspective, which is while he certainly took a few shots back, and we did counterpunch a bit, he's always had in mind that he wanted to be the nominee of the party. He wanted to unite the party. He wanted all these people ultimately to come on his team. So when people criticize his early debate performances, David, one thing I say is that when you look at how quickly Amy Globachar and Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, and Cory Booker uh, came to endorse him once he emerged after South Carolina, I think part of that is the benefit of the price we paid by not being as vicious on the debate stage to his rivals as he could have been, and by trying to kind of be a little more defensive, defend his own record, but not really punch back as hard as some people wanted to. And so I think you saw in those endorsements, not just a begrudging acceptance of a reality that Biden was the candidate, but people pretty happy to endorse him, pretty happy to embrace him. And I think uh, I think his conduct in this campaign, which we've paid some price for politically, I think in the end has served him extremely well. Now, look, I think in the one-on-one debate with Sanders, you were in a different situation, which was, um, uh, yes, Senator Sanders was attacking his record, but uh, Vice President Biden kind of had the strong position in the race uh, and was able to you know, respond to and slough off some of those attacks and point forward. And so I do think uh, one-on-one has always been stronger for him. I do think it's tricky when you're standing in the middle and people are punching you from the left and the right and all sides and and trying to not overreact to that. But I think we're just as strong as we can as possibly be in this one-on-one situation. That's some high-level chess, man. I mean, <laughs> absorb some blows and then eventually turn that energy outward <laughs> to, yeah. your, uh, to your benefit. So let me talk to you about 16 a little bit. You know, the three debates that Hillary Clinton had with Donald Trump, uh, if you look at the polls that were taken afterwards of voters, not of pundits, she won all three. You know, the Trump campaign believes that those polls didn't capture perhaps – you know, the dynamic they were seeing that, you know, they thought those debates helped them, helped them with turnout. Even though he wasn't a classical debater, he at least met some low threshold in terms of understanding issues, was aggressive, made the case for change, you know, talking about she's been there forever, nothing's changed. As you reflect back on that, did we miss something in those debates or did Hillary Clinton win all three debates? Did Hillary Clinton win the convention convincingly? And I think we had a much better convention than they did. But somehow, 
Because I think that's important for the campaign going forward because we've always in presidential campaigns, you know, those big moments, your convention, the three presidential debates, the one vice presidential debates, you have to win those. Then you have the rest of the campaign. I'm just curious because obviously this will inform your strategy going forward, how you reflect on that. So I obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about this, David, and I will say I'm somewhat divided in my own thoughts on this. I mean, on the one hand, she definitely won all three of those debates. And if you take... I think the most important measure, which is her share of vote, she was tied with Trump on the eve of the first debate. After that first debate, polls showed her three points ahead. After the second debate, polls showed her six points ahead. After the third debate, polls showed her nine points ahead. So when people say the debates didn't help, well, she went from being tied to nine points ahead. Now, we just had the fortuity, or the unfortuity, on the calendar that the last debate in 2016 was the earliest last debate we've ever had in the 30 years of debating. And so there were three weeks after that last debate for Jim Comey, for the Russians, for Trump to do a little better, for all these things to take her nine-point lead and you know shrink it down to the two-point lead we saw on election day. So that's one way I think about it, which is the debates were a success. They got us to a lead, but that lead got eaten up in the long period after the last debate. I have very little doubt that if we'd held an election in America the day after the last debate, Hillary Clinton would have won quite easily. And probably that's the best measure of whether or not the debates were winners or not. Now, I will say, I do think there is this point that really sticks with me, which is I think she won each of these debates by a stronger performance, by a stronger overall performance, by showing mastery, all these things. But Trump got something out of them, too, that we have, may have underestimated, which was the simplicity of a clear message about her. So she beat him on 10 points. Like she outscored him 10 to 2 or whatever. But he stood there and said, you're a crook, you're a crook, you're a crook, you're a crook. And I know that people in the Trump campaign believe the moment in the second debate, where after she just demolished him on the Access Hollywood tape, she then said, uh, he said, you know, like basically you're corrupt. And she says, "Uh, I'm glad you're not the one making those decisions. And he says, yeah, if I were, I would have locked you in jail which in all the pundits' mind was the moment he lost that debate, a loss of control. But I just wonder if he succeeded in delivering a very simple, oft-repeated, crude message about her that ultimately hurt and ultimately stuck. And I think it's like a fight between a, you know, kind of a really great fighter, which Hillary Clinton was, and a puncher, which Donald Trump is. And she landed a shit ton of blows in that thing, but maybe his one or two hard punches really did damage. So I'm not going to ask you to then talk about what that means for your preparations for this, because the whole world is counting on you to deliver <laughs> a victory. But I assume that does factor. I just think maybe we need to view debates with Trump like we do everything with Trump. We better forget a lot of the things we've learned, correct? Correct. I agree with that. I think, you know, I think we need to understand that uh, what worked on other candidates will not work on him. I think a lot of the things that President Obama did very successfully with Mitt Romney, ultimately after our first problem in Denver, it's just different with Trump. And, you know, and I think we also have to understand that Trump does do this thing where he just picks one theme and he just one or two themes. He just delivers them over and over and over. For a person who's kind of the worst political leader I've ever seen, like he got the memo on message discipline and he just really picks his one or two things and he just drives it and drives it and drives it. And, um, you know, we need to be prepared to cope with that. I'm curious. So um, you have been and you'll be again, I I hope, responsible for debate prep for, um, you know, both Joe Biden and his eventual VP nominee. But I'd like to ask you uh, about uh, the other part of the campaign, which is just the day to day. So not the conventions, not the debates. Another place where I do think Trump is an evil genius is he's so simple in his communication, right? He thinks uh, simple language, visuals, memes, outrageousness. And I'm just wondering, as you reflect on 2016 and how Trump has operated as president, how you handle that? Because that's the thing I will confess, I certainly haven't begun to pick the lock on, yeah, we can have great debates, let's hope we do, and let's hope we have great conventions and good moments, good ads. But just the day-to-day prosecution of the campaign against someone who will just dive on any grenade any time. You have any thoughts on that, Ron? Yeah, I think that one thing you know that's that's important always in politics, and that David, you've been a great uh, apostle on, is that you have to be careful not to fight the last war. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, 2012 wasn't 2008, and 2008 wasn't 2004, and 2020 isn't 2016. So I think the thing that we had in uh, going against us in 2016 was that Trump was the candidate of change in 2016. And the extent that people were disaffected, he captured that. And Trump was a candidate of competence in 2016. Uh, he had the business record. He had, uh, again, we can dispute the business record, but most Americans thought he was a very skilled competent, rich businessman, whether that's true or not. Yeah, his so names were on buildings, right? names were on buildings, you know, so on and so forth, right? And so, you know, he had that kind of as a backstop uh, for him. And he had this ability to appear a little bit of a chameleon, which is like really fierce to his rallies, but then conveying to people maybe he's, he's kind of more reasonable. Uh, I think a lot of pro-choice people in America thought Donald Trump was secretly pro-choice. A lot of the pro-life people thought he was absolutely pro-life. He was able to kind of be all things to all people in many respects. And I think all those things are gone as we head towards 2020. I think the record is the record, and what we're seeing unfold right now in coronavirus certainly blows up the idea that this guy is a competent person. The idea that there's some secretly reasonable person inside Donald Trump has been blown up by the three years of his record, his hatred, his division, all these things. And so I think that it is different. Now, he still has his assets, as you say. He does know how to take a simple message and drive it. He knows how to stick on top of things. He knows how to use social media, his use of Facebook, his, uh, a textbook course in American political history here, and all these things. But I think it will be harder for him to kind of duck and weave and dodge and and have both sides of every argument. And I think also in Joe Biden, he's facing a piece of kryptonite to whatever superpowers he has. He, He spent 10 months. He got himself impeached trying to destroy Joe Biden. He did something no president in history has ever done. Pressured a foreign leader to dig up dirt that wasn't there on his opponent, breaking every rule. And as I said, getting himself impeached. And you know what? Joe Biden, 10 months later, more popular than ever, uh, standing tall, uh, winning primaries, beating Trump in most of the polls. Why? Because the American people know him. This is, again, as you said before, maybe early on in the primaries, his, his duration of service was a big negative. But at this point in time, it's hard to tell people something about Joe Biden that they don't know. And they know he's a good guy. They know he's a decent guy. Even people in our party who are to the left and who wish we had a more liberal nominee will acknowledge that this is a, a person who really cares about working people, who's got a good heart. And I think it's going to be really hard for Trump to rough that up and to paint a different picture. I don't think it's going to stick. It hasn't stuck. It's not going to stick. So I think uh, you know he's as rugged and as durable in the impressions of him as Trump is in those impressions of himself. And I think that's going to be a big asset uh, when we go toe-to-toe. That all sounds both smart and optimistic in terms of, I think, the contours. <laughs> so, uh, Ron, you probably know this better than anybody on the planet. But what's interesting about these debates is it's ultimately human beings on the stage. And so for all – by the way, those of us that prep are human beings too. We make mistakes, right? So that's always the thing that's fascinating to me about debates is even if you feel good heading into a debate, you don't know what's going to happen on the stage. So I would like to take you back to a – a pretty brutal memory for both of us, just because I think it'll be interesting. So that in 2012, um, we had that terrible first debate with Romney. He was bad. We were bad. Colossal failure. Um, he being Obama, his prep team. As you recall, we go to Virginia. And I th- if I recall, it was a Sunday night. Um, I think the debate was Tuesday, right? We had a mock debate with John Kerry, who was playing at Romney. President Obama's performance that night was worse than his debate against Romney in Colorado. It was a disaster. So, and then if you recall, we had that meeting with him the next morning when, you know, he kind of confessed in very personal ways how much of a struggle this was for him. Um, And I thought you were brilliant both in terms of the recovery we needed to do after that bad first debate, some of the adjustments we made, um, the discussion we had in that meeting. Um, He'll probably write about this in his book, but I'm just curious, just I think it'll be interesting for listeners because we bounced back off the mat and ended up having both a good second debate and even a better third debate. But I think we were literally at that moment not sure we could pull this out. Yeah, I'll remember that morning with him as long as I live because we had been up most of the night trying to figure out what it would take to get this right. I think we knew that while we had taken a blow in the first debate, we still could win the election, but we couldn't have a repeat of what happened in Denver. We might well lose the election. And so there was a lot at stake. And Obama was just struggling in a way that I think none of us had ever seen. 
And we had a very candid conversation about that. And part of that was, of course, about, I think, the inevitable frustrations of an incumbent president who doesn't have the the flexibility and, and some of the freedoms that a challenger has that he had in 2008 to kind of paint broad pictures and paint broad strokes. And, and in 2012, he has to defend a record that we were very proud of, but that were the full promise of what he had done hadn't really been felt, hadn't really been achieved yet. And so we were struggling with that. I think he was struggling with the fact that fundamentally uh, he thought the Romney argument was dishonest and he didn't know what to do about that. Romney had passed a health care plan in Massachusetts very similar to Obamacare. And then the central argument was, of his campaign was that that plan was horrible. And I think Obama was struggling with that. And as you know better than anyone, President President Obama is a very intellectual person. I think the the soundbite nature of the debates, the the glibness of it, was definitely he was definitely chafing against that and chafing against the exercise. And uh, you know, ultimately, I think every one of us in the room with him uh, believed that he had obviously far and away the intellectual capacity to do it and uh, the skill to do it. But I think there was also a very simple mechanical thing that we also talked to him about. And it's a thing that always surprises people. But Barack Obama talks slowly, talks deliberately. And that was a huge advantage to us in the 2008 debates. The first debate in 2008 happened four days after the crash of the stock market. The country was freaked out. And the fact that Barack Obama stood there and spoke in very measured, careful terms was very reassuring to people. Four years later, people wanted to see action and movement. And the president's slow and deliberate cadence seemed boring to people, seemed too sedentary, not what they wanted, not action-oriented. And in fact, in the first debate in Denver, Obama talked four minutes longer than Romney and said 700 fewer words. Shows you how much slower he was talking than Romney. So one just mechanical thing we did that day in Virginia to get him ready for the second debate was to work with him to talk faster just to speed up his cadence, to make it seem more active, more energetic. And it also helped him stop second-guessing all his own answers and reprocessing all his own stuff. We were very lucky, David, to not only have one of the greatest pollsters in America, Joel Benenson, on our team, but to have Joel be a graduate of the Yale School of Drama, an unusual credential for a pollster in American politics. But as a graduate of the Yale School of Drama, uh, Joel thought a lot about how to speak faster and really helped us that day, kind of urged the president to speed up his cadence, to have an energetic delivery that really conveyed that sense of enthusiasm and energy that came through in that town hall debate, that second debate. Well, if I recall, we also really emphasized practicing just the first 15 seconds or so, right? Because yeah. one of the things he mentioned that morning is he's a lawyer. He wants to build up to his argument, you know, and some of that's on the one hand. On the other hand, and, and we weren't getting to our clear topic, sentence, and message out of the bait, uh, gate. So it was speak faster and nail the beginning, right? I mean, we really, it was almost like the beginning of spring training. It was like learning to walk even in a way. Yeah, you know, um, what Obama said in that meeting due to someone, not me, I wound up being extensively quoted in John Heilman's book, uh, Double Down. And uh, I pull a quote from that book, and I put it at the top of my syllabus for my class at Harvard Law School, where Barack Obama is the school's most distinguished alumni, one of its most distinguished alumni. And the quote is, he says, I can't do what you guys are asking because I'm a lawyer, and I think like a lawyer. And we spent some time in class discussing how being a lawyer may make you a bad debater or not, or make you think about these things in the wrong way or not, how we as lawyers are prepared to engage in certain kinds of public arguments and not prepared to engage in others. I also have speak in my class every year, David, uh, Beth Myers, who was in charge of preparing Mitt Romney for that debate. And so we talk about this. And she often likes to point out that Mitt Romney is also a graduate of the Harvard Law School and was also a lawyer. And, uh, and maybe the whole lawyer thing wasn't really what it was all uh, made out to be. But I do think that whether it was because of his legal training or not, President Obama has a very methodical way of thinking. That served him enormously well as President of the United States. It serves you less well on a debate stage, uh, where it's a little more about instinct and aggression and being quick and getting people's attention on your answers at the first sentence. And so, yeah, he did have to do things differently than the way he liked to do things. 
Yeah, I mean, he was obviously a person of great political gifts, but, you know, campaigns are like a decathlon, and there's a bunch of different events. Debating was not one of his best events. It's still remarkable to me, and you deserve a lot of credit for this, that he went five and one, <laughs> you know, in his six presidential uh, debates, even though that was one of his weaker events. Yeah, you know, one of my uh, one of my favorite, everyone has their mementos from the Obama years, and one of my favorite is a picture of the president after the last debate in 2012, when he finished, came off the stage in Florida, and it's a picture of him putting his hand on my shoulder. And what he's saying in the picture is, I finally figured this out. <laughs> and, and of course, it was after the very last time he would ever debate as a candidate ever in his entire life. He did have a fantastic debate, that third debate, that foreign policy debate in Florida. He really was fantastic against Mitt Romney. He really had finally figured it out. But he finally figured out after he played his last game. So I always laugh when I think about that moment. Well, Ron, thank you for the service you're providing your country again to help us understand the coronavirus and uh, what we need to be doing differently and better, your service to the country. And obviously, all of us are wishing you the best and the entire Biden team, both in this uh, general election and the debate. So um, we're hoping um, some of your handiwork will show up on the stage. I agree with you. Trump cannot ignore the spotlight. And there's a chance he's going to be behind in the race at that point. So almost by definition, he's going to have to do it. But we will be rooting you on and, and wishing you the best. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me, David. I've always learned a lot from every conversation I've had with you over the years. And uh, you can be sure I'll be seeking out those conversations as we get closer <laughs> to this in the fall. Likewise, my friend. Hang in there. Thanks, David. So, Ron, you know, I think captured very well for all of us all the mistakes Trump and his administration have made. They are no less infuriating uh, when you hear them, someone like Ron, than when we read them in newspapers. But it captured we didn't have to be where we are today. Um, we could be in a much more advantaged position. I think Ron captured um, the near-term health challenges and how Trump's mishandling of this has made that even worse. And also, I think Ron captured um, how important not just short-term triage is going to be economically, as important as that is, but understanding we're just not going to snap back. I think Ron really put this well. This isn't a snowstorm where for a few days or a few weeks, you know, your economy is sidelined and then everybody comes back just the way it was. You know, we have businesses that will never reopen. We have workers who've lost jobs that will never return. And this is going to take great skill, great planning to really do smart things to get our economy back on strong footing. Uh, and it was fascinating to, to talk to Ron about debates, both in terms of what the debates with Trump uh, may look like, reflections on 2016, and how even though the polls suggested Hillary won, um, you know, Trump's simplistic messaging against Hillary might have served him better than we all realized. And some thoughts about Joe Biden. Obviously, Ron was Joe Biden's chief of staff uh, in the White House. He's also led debate prep for Joe Biden in 8 and 12. His vice president has been deeply involved this time and will lead those efforts in, in 20. So very few people on the planet are going to be more important to our country's future than Ron uh, because he's going to be deeply involved in, in making sure that uh, Joe Biden hopefully has the types of debates that'll make it more likely that Donald Trump is a one-term president. So um, I know we'll all be uh, listening to Ron. He's got a great new podcast called Epidemic. Um, he's doing a lot of interviews, an important voice uh, to help us navigate and narrate uh, the moment we're in. So I look forward to talking to you all next week on Campaign HQ. Campaign HQ.